In 2012, after 44 years of business, Sound One, in the Brill Building at 1619 Broadway, possibly the most successful post-production facility in New York's history, closed its doors. What caused the demise of Sound One is a point of contention between the clients, former owners, founders, and staff who hold multiple theories about why it failed. Some blame a distant holding company in Denver who was out of touch with the needs of the local community in New York and undermined Sound One's business practices which required creative and financial flexibility to maintain its base of both established and upcoming filmmakers. Others cite a long process of chipping away at the character of Sound One over a period of time during which the company was bought and sold five times to various entities. Here, former staff and clients explain in their own words how the end of Sound One came to be, and how in its wake, new pools of talent and multiple post-production facilities emerged. The voices in the Rebirth episode include former Sound One studio manager Jay Rubin, chief engineer Avi Laniato, picture editors Tim Squires and Andy Monchine, supervising sound editors Phil Stockton and Stuart Stanley, former Sound One managing director Jonathan Porath, re-recording mixers Tom Fleischman and Mel Zelnicker, and ADR mixer Bobby Johansson. This frame-by-frame -frame podcast is one of a multi-part series on the era of New York Sound One. Frame-by-frame -frame is presented by Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance, because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org, and we can be found on Twitter at at PostNY. The host for the Sound One episode is Harbor Picture Company. Sound One closed September 12th. 2012, and I started September 19th, 1979, so it was really strange. But it was Jim Gardner and Alan Hale and I were the last men standing, closing mm. the place down. It was sad. When they closed their doors very abruptly and everyone scattered, it was, it was kind of a shock. You know, there uh, all of a sudden there are all these other facilities that either came into existence or started to grow, and you never knew where's Avi working now. Yeah. I'm not even sure. And um, we were we were in LA working on Life of Pi when yeah, that happened. When right? that happened, and and we you know kind of got the call and kind of went like, what? What now? We felt it was like a death. It was like yeah. somebody. It was like hearing your uncle was in a car accident yeah. and didn't make it or yeah. something. It was a power struggle because there were there was Tadeo. There was Sound One, and there was Sound Deluxe, and they were all vying to be the, you know, the king of the the hill. They all wanted the position to be in charge of this entity, and Sound Deluxe was the one that won that battle. The guy who was under Sound Deluxe, I guess, was yeah. Liberty Live Wire. A lot of the people left, and then it basically became Live Live Wire, and the whole sound part of Live Wire they gave to the Sound Deluxe guys. But what happened? They bought. All the, all the sound companies and all the video companies, but all the good ones and the bad ones. So within a, within a year, they had to close all the bad ones. Sound One had some actually very, very good years. Unfortunately, some of the other facilities didn't have good times. And then they started squeezing us. And especially after Bill died, it, it was just not fun anymore because it didn't matter. I remember there was one year that we did incredibly well and we worked towards the end of the year. and. And everybody worked like a dog and stuff like that. And then they said, well, no bonuses this year because all the other companies did bad. And we like, we're the only company that did well. And, and Jay, you remember, we had to have a client pay for the Christmas party and, and bonus. We, we had to do some stuff. And we all personally got into trouble doing stuff to try and keep the, the momentum. And that's when it started going down.
I knew right then when 54th Street closed and whatever they sold it for, you know, they got from the landlord, 11 million, 14 million, I don't really know the number. I knew when they didn't give us any money, this was 2007, when they didn't give us any money to retool, remember we said we wanted a presence downtown because we all knew that's where people were going. And then in 2008, we told them not, in 2000, we told them not to renew all our leases at the Brill. We wanted to have a presence downtown. And mm. when they didn't give us any money and they renewed all our leases at 208 for all four, in 2008 for all five floors, I knew it was over then. Somewhere around 2003 or something like that, our leases were going to end, and we found out that also Broadway Video's leases were going to end, and we devised a thing that we would, we were the biggest tenants of the building. We had like six floors, and they had three, so we had we were ninety percent of the building, and and we we agreed between us and Broadway Video that we would really kind of put pressure on the landlord. Either we're all leaving next year, or you give us a ten-year, uh, and, and that's when the real estate wasn't so good in New York, so we could have gotten a great deal. And we went back to Denver and we said, you know, this would be great, you know, because we, we're so invested here. We can't really go downtown, but if we could lower our rent and have a 10-year, we could really survive this thing. And they said, no way. And that's when I knew the writing was on the wall. You're right. The handwriting was on the wall by the end of, by the middle of 2004. Right. When, yeah. right. We knew, Mel, when you, right before you left and business was slow and we were thinking about you know, unfortunately, had these meetings about who do you let go, who do you not. And Mel said, look, I'm leaving, I'm retiring. You know, Mel, Mel saved a couple of people, just, you know. There was a moment there where they came to us and they said, you know, we need to take a 10% cut from everybody in the company. And I looked at them and I said, guys, you serious? He said, everybody needs 10%. I said, well, you know, we have 10 mixers and they all have contracts, so we really can't do that, the, the mixers. And the rest of the people work with the union, and, you know, we have a great union contract, and in the end of the day, we just negotiated a great union contract. We can't do that. So it leaves Sybil, John Pearson, Kurt, they were like, and the cleaning guys, you know. <laughs> These are the guys who, who make the least amount of money and really, really need the money. And by the time the 10% across this company of, of almost 85 people, it's going to be maybe $10,000. You know, we, we, we spend more on coffee every week. You know, is this really what you want to do? Is this, well, can't you make it happen? I said, no, you can't. That's not how it works in New York. You know, it just, and that's kind of when you realize the, the stupidity of them. They just didn't get what was going on in New York. When we got to San Juan the day they closed, I remember going up to the eighth floor. Everyone was sort of locked out. I remember Avi and everyone, the doors were, codes weren't working, and I put up my pass, and the door clicked open. I had an all-access pass, but I wasn't one of the San Juan employees. I guess that code wasn't erased, and everyone scrambled in to get their stuff. I, I grabbed my drives from my table. I was working on Blue Bloods. I grabbed my drives, and I went home. And on the way home, stopped off at... 47th Street Photo, whatever it is, they put more hard drives and cloned my stuff because I didn't know what was going to happen. We were in the middle of a mix. We were absolutely in the middle of a mix of Blue Bloods. Andy Chris went to the bathroom because they allowed us one week to mix 
The CBS got all involved because they didn't want to shut down. Andy Chris went to the bathroom, came back to the bathroom, and the studio was locked again by the guys who were shutting things down. We had to get them to open the door again so we can finish our mix. We wound up at Soundtrack for two weeks, but that didn't work out well for some reason or other with CBS and Soundtrack. And Andy Chris worked it out that we would go over to Goldcrest. And Goldcrest was very accommodating to us. They built us a new ADR stage, and they moved their Color Correct studio upstairs and built a re-recording stage for us downstairs at Goldcrest. And we stayed there for about two and a half years. They treated us very well, and that was very nice, very comfortable there. And then Andy went over to Warner Brothers. They gave him a new offer and actually made another re-recording studio for Andy there. And Blue Bloods is now there. So my my career stint on Blue Bloods went from Sound One to Soundtrack to Goldcrest too. So I sort of been around the. When Sound One, we just all got the notice. We're closing in a week. I knew three weeks later I had five months of a huge Ken Burns project to do. So I ended up going to Soundtrack where Tommy works, but they did so much. They they jumped through hoops to make everything work for me that I, you know, eventually I just stayed. You know, that's a terrific place. After Sound One, I called Avi, found out, you know, these guys were settling down here, and uh, I walked this place with Zach uh, Tucker, who's the owner of uh, Harbor, and showed me what we could do with that ADR, you know, where, like, this was just all storage. And I said, all right, here's what you do. You put your screen there, you put your control room there, you go there because it had pillars and stuff, and they started building this thing exactly in that spec. Long story short, it was uh, meant to be, and uh, it's such a convenient place for actors to come and everything. Brill building was great in its time, but you know, we would have uh, De Niro and Merrill come through there and cut through the line of Chicago, which was the theater, playing the theater next door, and they'd be all frazzled because they were hassled trying to get into the building. It's that that area is is over, you know, and uh, it's just very very relaxed and cool down here. So I love it. Actors are happy. I'm happy. Jim and I had the task of moving Blue Bloods, showing you soundtrack. I called Sync Sound soundtrack, Goldcrest, Postworks. I called like every sound facility that I could think of, and I know most of them. And I gotta tell you, the one thing was every facility that I called was trying and willing to help. I mean, they knew it was business for them, <laughs> but, but this town was very accommodating Absolutely. to all of us. At one point that I realized how much San Juan meant to New York City, toward the end, we were offered an opportunity to maybe try and take the company if you remember, it was five of us, but they needed the money within 10 days, and we didn't have that kind of money. Um, so I'm not surprised, but uh, anyway, <laughs> back then we tried to help and resurrect the company from whatever happened to it. And uh, what, we, what we ended up doing is calling a few movie makers like the Weinsteins, and M. Knight, who was starting his next movie, and uh, Scott Wooden, and they all put their financial guys to try and see and study the financial reports to see if, they, if it makes sense for them to make it happen. All three of them together, four of them together, were talking to each other. But they only gave us a week to 
put it together. Oh, I mean, who is in this right mind? But they really tried. They tried so yeah, much. No, that when I realized how much it meant to everyone. It, yeah. it was a death in the family. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was a punch, a gut punch, and it happened so quickly. And you guys got, I, I was the last cutting room to close. We had an extra week because right. we were wrapping out. And, you know, the, the only thing we can take from it is this sort of diaspora of everybody who spread around town means that all of the family is still thriving. Yeah, we got and, a lot of cousins and, all over. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing. It's like uh, Sound One was this, you know, sort of Johnny Appleseed thing that sprouted so many people. But now it's spread, and it's all around New York, and it's kind of amazing. I can go, and I've worked at all these different facilities. And, and someone you know. And in the end, not just someone you know, someone that you grew up in this business with and have... You know, developed a kind of uh, New York film community that we so much wanted, and that Alicia so much believed in, and uh, and it's so it's still here. It's not gone, guys. It's just the it's real building out. part of it out. is. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's really amazing. Here we go. Greatest story ever told. This podcast series, The Sound One Era, 1968-2012, to was co-produced by Sherry Johansson and Isabel Sidurney. The sound engineers were Bobby Johansson and Mike Rivera. Music by The Sound One All-Stars. In New York, I'm your host, Isabel Sidurney, and this is Frame by Frame.